0: Have your Bibles, and I hope that you do. Join me in turning to the book of First Peter, chapter 5. 1 Peter, chapter 5. We'll look together this morning at verses 8 through 14. This will be our final installment in our series in the book of 1 Peter, as this is Peter's closing exhortation in the letter. In the parable of the souls, or the parable of the sower. Jesus describes the work of the farmer sowing seed on a variety of soil types. The first soil that the seed finds is that of the roadway or that part of the soil that's trafficked consistently such that it becomes hard and the seed is unable to penetrate that soil and in that case the birds of the air come and quickly devour the seed. In the second example, the seed falls on stony ground. The soil itself is fertile, good for growth, but because of the stony nature of the soil, the seed itself was unable to establish a suitable root system so that when the sun comes up, it is scorched and quickly dies. It doesn't have the opportunity to become fruitful. In a third example, there are seeds that are sown among the thorns and the thistles. And although the seed itself springs forth initially, it is quickly subsumed by those other weeds and thorns and thistles around it. There is no fruitfulness. But in the fourth example, there is gospel seed that is sown on good soil and it springs forth in what Jesus describes as 30, 60 and 100 fold fruitfulness. One of the many principles that might be drawn from that little parable is this. Unless the seed of the gospel is well-rooted in our heart, we will not be fruitful. The gospel will not bear its fruit in our life. I want you to think with me for just a moment. Do you know people, have there been people, perhaps even those who've made meaningful contributions to your walk with Jesus... Who are themselves no longer walking with Christ. You might look around in this room and take note of some who are not here. Whom you once regarded as followers of Jesus. And yet, in their life, there is no existing evidence of any relationship whatsoever. No effort made on their part to walk with Christ or to enjoy any participation with a local body of of saints. This is a hard reality, but it is a reality nonetheless, that except we are firmly rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will ultimately drift away. Now, Peter's closing exhortation here is focused on, it is geared toward warning those walking with Jesus at the present hour that we are susceptible to the attacks of Satan, and we had better be watchful, we had better be alert, lest we too fall victim to the besetting of our faith and the end of our journey with Jesus in the same way you and I have known others to do. This is a warning to a church in a season of suffering. Suffering makes us susceptible. We become vulnerable during seasons of some hardship in the same way physically when you are tired, when you are weary, you become weak and susceptible to certain failures and even sin. So too this is true in the spiritual realm. Under duress, when the heat is high and the pressure is on, there is a certain vulnerability in our weakness. The Ever-present weakness of the flesh, in spite of the willingness of the Spirit, when we are under suffering, we are susceptible to attack. So Peter will say again and again, be watchful, be cautious, be careful, hold the line, stand firm in the faith, don't shrink back, don't compromise, press on, faithful to the end. 1 Peter chapter 5 Beginning in verse 8, if you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Be serious, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him and be firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Now the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will personally restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered a little. The dominion belongs to him forever. Amen. I have written you this brief letter through Sylvanus. I know him to be a faithful brother, to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Take your stand in it. The church in Babylon, also chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Perhaps the best-known part of the passage that we've just read is the warning of verse number 8 Your adversary the devil prowls about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now this is not a devil made me do it sentiment from Peter. This is a stern warning that you and I at different points along the way to varying degrees are susceptible to the to the attacks of the apex spiritual predator. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. That is a reality for you, and it is a reality for me. If you're living this happy-hearted, glib Christian existence with very little disruption, you can rest assured that your path will change abruptly. You and I have an adversary in Satan who is actively at work to beset our faith and to undermine the ministry that Christ intends to do in us. Now, the tricky thing about this warning is that seldom does Satan come to us in ways that are apparent. It's it's always in the subtle, unseen, underappreciated ways that Satan does his work. As a pastor, it is incredible to note the number of times I have found myself through the years in conversation with people who are deeply entrenched in sin and yet they have self-justified so much that they firmly believe themselves to be somehow doing the right thing. And perhaps you have observed personally as you have grown in grace and knowledge of the gospel and God's will and God's word, that even for you, there have been convictions held, decisions made, words spoken. You believed in the moment with all your heart to be right. But over the course of time, you found to be in the direct violation of the will and the word of God mankind has an incredible knack for justifying the sometimes dreadful decisions that we make you know i've never been a big fan of this idea that he or she is a good person they just make bad decisions no they're bad they're just bad what is a bad person if it's not a person who makes bad decisions But we concoct language like that to justify our immorality, to make sense of our wickedness, to somehow provide context and points of reference for the wicked things that we do. We draw comparisons. We lay ourselves down in the ditch and measure ourselves against who we regard to be the worst of the worst. When in reality, we are blackened and dark in our heart. We are sinners by birth and by choice. We are broken. You can't just trust your discernment, your judgment. That's why we call on the power of God's Spirit to lead us, to bring to our memory the principles of God's Word, that we know how to proceed and what to do in a given scenario. The language of verse 8, your adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour or destroy has some strong echoes of job chapter number one and job one as the sons of god are called before the throne of god the bible says that satan came among them and in answer to god's question as to where he'd been he responded going to and fro throughout the earth and although the answer is not given as obviously as we could assume It's clear that he's moving to and fro with the direct purpose of seeking out those whom he may devour. Now, one of the lessons that we learned from Job 1 about the nature of Satan's work is that he moves in ways that are suited, they're specifically designed or tailored to a given weakness. One of the things you'll observe in Job chapter 1 is that Job is earnestly concerned with the well-being of his children when they gather together to celebrate the feast. We don't know exactly what feast they're celebrating, but there are these periodic celebrations that call for the gathering together of Job's children. And Job is concerned that in this festive atmosphere, in the partying that ensues, that somehow they'll do something that compromises their standing with God. It's a, it's a credit to Job as a father, that he has enough discernment to know that there are certain environments that are not given to godliness, but environments in which the spiritual standing of our children might in fact be compromised. But remember, when Satan attacked the, the children of Job, where, where were they? And what were they doing? When the winds hit the four corners of the house, they were gathered together in the very environment that concerned Job the most. What you learn about Satan's activity in the world in Job chapter 1 is that he himself has an incredible ability to find the exposed nerve and to put his devilish finger there. Wherever it is that you are susceptible to temptation, you can rest assured that your adversary, that prowling lion, will put his finger there. So Peter warns in verse 8 that you ought to be serious and you ought to be alert. When a lion is on the prowl, neither the shepherd nor the sheep may sleep, but are vigilant. They are watchful, careful, and cautious. Be serious, Peter says. Be alert. The idea here is to be of sober mind. Don't be intoxicated with the circumstances of this life so that your guard is down. Be aware of his presence there and the great danger that he poses. Be serious. Be alert, Peter says. If you are to finish your race well, If you are to complete the course that God has set before you, you're going to have to be vigilant and watchful along the way. The second thing in verse number nine, resist him, Peter says, and be firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. It reads here in our English as though there are actually two commands being given in verse nine, resist him and be firm in the faith. Resist him one, be firm in the faith two. But a more rigid translation of verse nine would read this way. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your brothers in the world. It's not that Peter is saying resist him one, and be firm in the faith two. It's not that we separate those two in our minds, nor does Peter intend to separate them. It is that Peter is saying the way to resist the devil is by being firm in the faith. From time to time I hear someone talking about throwing the devil out of a room or casting out a spirit in some way that intends to mimic the activity of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. The answer to resisting the devil is not an incantation tossing him out of a room but to shore up our foundations in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Resist the devil by being firm in the faith. In other words, meditate, dwell deeply on the truth of the gospel, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. That God has loved us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die as our substitute on the cross. The one without sin became sin at Calvary for us in order that we might be clothed with his own righteousness. In his death, raised from the dead on the third day. At the right hand of God at this very hour, pleading that we would come to him in faith. Dwell deeply there shore up your faith in the gospel every day repenting of your sin and believing the power of the gospel to save and to keep to the uttermost resist him and be firm in the faith i would note here that one of the ways that we shore up our faith in the gospel that we resist the devil in this regard is by finding our total satisfaction and fulfillment in the things of Jesus. If you're drinking deeply from the fountain of the water of life, you'll not be so inclined to drink from broken cisterns that cannot satisfy. Have you observed, just in general, how often the passing pleasure, the fleeting satisfaction fails to deliver what it promises in the beginning this is in every area of life just the other day I was I was thinking when I when I'm really thirsty we're getting to the part of the year it's warm outside do a little yard work a a cold carbonated soft drink is just about as good as it gets right like when I'm super thirsty but it doesn't satisfy the thirst right I finish the drink and I'm just thirsty again and the next thing you know you're 20 pounds heavier because you're slugging mountain dew and you're still thirsty you're drinking and you're drinking and you're drinking and yet you continue to thirst and thirst and thirst because you're drinking from the wrong fountain but if you'll drink from the fountain of the water of life and find your thirst satisfied with living water You'll never thirst again for those fleeting pleasures that never deliver on the promises they make. Peter says, resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. There seems to me in verses eight through 14, a concern on the part of Peter that the church understands their corporate identity. What I mean by that is Peter wants suffering believers to understand that although they may suffer individually, they never suffer alone. That you and I, in our difficulties, in our hardships, do not bear our burdens independent of the body of Christ. Peter notes here that not only are they suffering in rural Asia minor, but everywhere the gospel has been proclaimed, there are those who are suffering for the very reasons and the very kinds of hardship that are being endured in rural Asia minor. Know that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Peter seems to be saying, in fact, And the fourth exhortation of our passage, which we'll get to in conclusion, I think his purpose here is to say, hold together, hold fast, stand strong together. I wish this were not the case, but usually God equips his people for ministry through suffering. I doubt there's anyone here. I'm not sure there's anyone in the kingdom that has been given a kingdom platform, that has been equipped with the tools necessary to minister to people without a measure of suffering in their own experience. Our greatest education as ministers of the gospel cannot be found in seminaries or theological institutions, but in the seasons of suffering, God is pleased to grant He grows us and nourishes our soul and trains us in those chapters of our life to be a minister to others who will undergo similar or even same circumstances. We are very much in this thing together. God has called us together as a faith family. That terminology is used quite intentionally. You are never alone in your suffering for the advancement of the kingdom. Even the suffering that may visit you, your family, or your home, independent of kingdom interest, those kinds of things that just roll around naturally. There is a network of brothers and sisters who love you deeply, even at times in the absence of a personal knowledge of your name, but who love you deeply as a brother or sister in Christ resist him and know brothers that you're not in this thing alone look at verses 10 and 11 now the god of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in christ jesus will personally restore establish strengthen and support you after you've suffered a little while The dominion belongs to him forever. Amen. Verse 11, the idea of the dominion belonging to our God. Dominion is a term that we don't often use in our culture. And I'm not sure it's always well understood in its New Testament context. Simply speaks to his power. The whole world, in fact the heavens and the earth. ...are under the dominion, that is to say they're under the power, under the authority of our God. This is an obvious way of saying that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. There isn't a single doctrine in the Bible that comforts me more, that lowers my blood pressure... ...and decreases my anxiety like the knowledge that God... Is absolutely sovereign over all things. There's not a millisecond of your life that has escaped the divine attention of our God. There's not an atom in all creation that has slipped the lordship of Jesus Christ. Every wind, every wave, every rock every mountain, every star, every planet, every cell in your body, every thump of your heart, every breath that you take, every circumstance of your life is under the direct dominion of Jesus Christ. Brothers, we can rest in this reality. Now I want you to think for just a moment about a certain tension that Peter's created for us going back to verse number 8. Verse 8, Peter warns that your adversary, the devil, prowls about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, I don't expect you to remember the sermon from about six weeks ago, but we covered chapter 4 and verse number 17. In chapter 5, verse 8, just to note, he seems to assign the sufferings of the present hour to the work of Satan in the world. But in 417, the Bible says, it's time, for the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God? In its context, what Peter is saying there is that God has ordained the suffering experienced at the present hour as a prelude to the final judgment where sheep and goats are separated where the wheat is separated from the tares, where the all-seeing eye of God distinguishes between right and wrong, the true and the false, the sincere and the fake. In other words, Peter assigns the experiences of suffering in 4.17 to the work of God in all the world, in chapter 5 and verse 8, to the work of Satan in all the world. Well, which in the world is it? Genesis chapter 50, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The brothers of Joseph come before Joseph after the death of their father, Jacob. They fear that now, that now Joseph will punish them for their having thrown him into a pit and sold him into slavery. And they come hat in hand pleading with Joseph that he would deliver them from judgment. And Joseph responds to their request, what you meant for evil, God meant for good now there's moral clarity and understanding for us in this observation sometimes bad things do in fact happen in fact sometimes deeply wicked things happen to us are done against us And for the sake of moral clarity, we need to acknowledge that this act is wicked. This act is evil. Sometimes it's even the direct consequence of our own foolish decisions. And we can say it was a foolish decision. But at the same time, we can acknowledge that even our idiocy, And the wickedness of mankind is superintended by God for our good and for the glory of his name. When the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 that all things are being worked together for the good of those who love him, the called according to his purpose. Note that he does not say all things are good. Some things are inherently evil. In fact, it might be that more things are inherently evil than there are things that are inherently good. And we must call a spade a spade and acknowledge the wicked nature of what's unfolded before our eyes even when we've made the decision that's brought the evil act to pass. But we can rest, brothers and sisters, in the reality that even when we foul it up, God is at work for our good and for the glory of his name. can rest in that. Peter invites us to rest in the dominion, to rest in the authority to rest in the sovereignty of God over all things. The next breath you take is the direct result of the conscious divine decision of our God in the courts of heaven. Rest in the dominion of our Lord. Now he builds up to this in verse 10. Now the God of all grace who called you to his Eternal glory in Christ Jesus will personally restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered a little. Now, most of what Peter promises in verse 10 is a future promise. He will restore, establish, strengthen, and support. But as in the gospel, our assurance of what is to come is not the mere product of hopeful optimism our anticipation of what is to come in the gospel is firmly rooted in what God has already done in time past namely the resurrection of Jesus is our assurance of our resurrection the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of the gospel but here, something similar is done as Peter invites us to give consideration to what the future holds for us, namely our restoration, our being established, our being supported and strengthened by God. It's not a hopeful optimism that leads us to the conclusion that this will come to pass. But what God has already done in our personal experiences in times past, namely, He has called us, He has called and he has saved and he is actively sanctifying there was a moment in time in the history of your life as a believer when God actively imposed himself on the events of your life when God called your name when God grabbed hold of your heart and arrested your soul in salvation listen on June the 22nd of 2001 I was not looking for Jesus In fact, I was up to no good. And I had an established itinerary for the day as to the many ways I would be up to no good well into the 23rd. But he came to me. He called me. As we've sang for years, he sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. You weren't looking for Jesus. You didn't find Jesus. He found you. The fact that he has actively imposed himself on the events of your life ought to serve as assurance that he would continue to do so, not only to save, but to keep you to the very end. Now may the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will personally, he doesn't dispatch an angel, doesn't send an ambassador, he will Personally restore. Remember the shepherd's psalm, Psalm 23, verse 4? He restoreth my soul. In the shepherd's psalm, and in most biblical contexts, this has to do with the binding and the bandaging of the wounds, the hurts of the sheep or an individual. He'll come personally and restore, bind, and bandage, and make right. He'll establish and strengthen and support. He'll provide for all your needs. But only after you've suffered a little while. Aren't you glad for that little designation at the end? A little while. It is one thing to suffer. It is another thing to suffer for a long time. And frankly, to suffer for a day feels like a long time. Some of you have suffered in great ways, and others of you have suffered for a long time. I I tell people it's one thing to be sick. It's another thing to be sick and tired. Throw that terminology around. It's the kind of thing that we use to express ourselves often. But to be sick or suffering or in pain for extended Periods of time in our life is a difficult thing to bear with, the kind of thing that can weaken the body, and if not careful, can even weaken our faith commitments. What Peter does here in verses 10 and 11 is to set the context for our earthly suffering. Though a day of suffering in this life can seem like forever, 10 years of suffering in this life can seem like 10 forevers. But within the context of eternity, Peter sets the parameters of our suffering as just a little while. There are times when in council, as a pastor, I find myself across the desk from people who, from my perspective, will for the duration of their earthly life, experience some measure of suffering. It's just the way it is. It's just the way that it's going to be my prayer is always that God would turn their heaviness of heart to joy that he would give them contentment in this life but the reality is that for all of us regardless of our level of contentment there's always going to be a measure of frustration and pain and suffering assigned as a part of our experience here but the day is coming When this brief chapter of our eternal existence is closed. When we are clothed in immortality and incorruptibility. When we stand forever in the presence of our Savior Jesus. Brothers, sisters, bear with suffering for just a little while. Because the day is coming when it will abruptly be brought to its end. Aren't you glad for that? There's, there's a fourth exhortation in our passage. We've been called upon to be watchful, to resist the devil, to rest in the dominion of our God. The fourth is found in verse 12. I have written you this, this brief letter through Sylvanus. I know him to be a faithful brother, to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Peter says, I've written this brief letter through Sylvanus. He's speaking of a certain practice in the first century where a secretary would often be employed. The speaker, the author himself, would dictate the letter to the secretary. The secretary would then write down the words of the author, in this case, Peter. And in the specific case of 1 Peter, Sylvanus seems to be the one to have delivered the letter from the city of Rome to the churches, the rural churches. Of Asia Minor in verse 13 Peter offers this greeting the church in Babylon also chosen sends you greetings as does mark my son Babylon becomes code for the first century church to speak of the city of Rome Peter is stationed in Rome at the time of his writing this letter if you're living in a Roman context and the roman empire is actively persecuting christians peter's within months or years of his own death by persecution you don't want to give up the cover of your brothers and sisters in christ so babylon becomes the designation he notes here that they are also chosen this is a further effort on the part of the apostle peter to build this corporate identity within the bodies using the language of chosenness and election from the old testament context to help the church to understand that in spite of the ethnic and geographical boundaries that may exist between them they are one in the body of christ there is one lord and one faith and one baptism and god has adopted them regardless of their location or ethnic background into his family into the lineage of abraham Church in Babylon, also chosen, sends you greetings as does Mark, my son. A reminder of the restorative grace of God. This Mark mentioned by Peter is the author of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, largely the work of Peter's insights and experiences with Jesus in his earthly ministry and his observations of his crucifixion and resurrection most believe that the gospel of Mark represents the early apostolic message. If you want to know what a sermon looked like in the first century, read the 16 chapters of the gospel of Mark. This is also the same Mark that was the source of such division between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas that they actually had a split in their missionary team. Paul went one way and Barnabas another. But the usefulness of Mark for ministry is abundantly clear. Not only in his writing of the Gospel of Mark, his position at the side of the Apostle Peter, but his usefulness to the Apostle Paul likewise. It seems to be a model here for restoration and for grace and for mercy. The book closes in verse 14 with these words, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. One might argue that there is a command in verse 14 to greet one another with a kiss of love. I would suggest to you that this is a cultural feature of the conclusion of this book. And I would warn you, if you try to kiss me this morning, I can't promise what the outcome is going to be. But the fourth and final command that I want you to see, and that we should most certainly observe, is found at the conclusion of verse number 12. I'll read again there. Paul, Peter says, I've written you this letter through Sylvanus to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Take your stand in it. When the persecution comes, don't cower in fear and don't run away but take your stand in the grace of God. Now, set within the context of verses eight through 14, where there seems to be such a strong effort on the part of Peter to help the church to understand their corporate identity and to bind themselves together in this season of persecution, he seems here to be especially concerned that they do not disassemble as a congregation under great duress. There are times for us when to disassemble is the right thing, when scattering is the move to make. But what Peter is saying to these churches is that now is not the time to run away or to cower in fear, but to take your stand in the grace of our God. Think of the early chapters of the book of Acts. Jesus had commissioned the disciples that they were under the power of the Spirit to be witnesses to the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in those early chapters of Acts, the church seemed to be satisfied to settle in to their humble beginnings there in the city of Jerusalem, that is, until persecution Broke out. In that instance, God used the scattering of the church to see the message of the gospel advanced in all the world. Sometimes God works in that way. But in the specific circumstances of 1 Peter chapter 5, What Peter has called them to do is not to scatter or to run away, but to take their stand, to be bold, to bind themselves together again in this corporate identity that we are in this thing together. To firmly resolve together that they will not bend, they will not break, they will not compromise, they will not shrink back, but would take their stand in the gospel bound together as a local assembly. There's a certain degree of danger that comes with attending the assembly of the church in an environment where persecution is a reality. Peter seems to be concerned that that not be the cause of their ceasing to assemble. Now, I don't want to shoehorn anything here, but but I, I do want to note that at least by implication, A concern the Apostle uh, Peter has here is that they stay within the context of the church assembled if they are not to drift away. If you're to finish the course, if you're to run your race well, you're going to have to be watchful. You're going to have to resist the devil, rest in the authority of God, and take your stand. A part of what it means to take your stand is to bind yourself together with a local body of believers. I ask you when we began this morning, if you knew people who once identified with Jesus who have now drifted away, if you do, I can trace their progression in the drift almost without exception. In the first phase, which often goes unobserved, there's a a coldness that comes upon one's devotional life an indifference toward the reading of the word, a lack of concern with committing time to prayer. It's often unobserved because our devotional life is so personal or so private. Unless you're near them enough to see the absence of prayer and devotion, you would likely not notice this phase of their drift. And then with spiritual dryness and the absence of any meaningful devotional life, there's a susceptibility to sin that comes on us. And over the course of time, because we're not drinking from living water fountains, but from broken cisterns, we continue to go back again and again and again. And before long, sin has so easily ensnared us. And as sin begins to settle in for a couple of different reasons, there begins to be a distancing from the body of Christ. If you are deeply engaged in sin as a believer, it becomes... A difficult, discomforting thing to gather together with the church in the celebration of the righteousness of God. Not only will you not want to be a part of the church assembled, you're not going to want to be around people who are walking worthy of the calling with which they have been called. You don't want to be around friends or family that are devoted to the things of Jesus. And over the course of time, there's a growing level of comfort that overcomes us with this absence from the body. And, and the presence of sin and, and any, any concern whatsoever for devotional life has long since been out the window and we will begin to develop for ourselves a new system of values that fits more nicely with our new way of life than what has been set forth for us in the teaching of the scripture. That is the natural progression. And Brothers and sisters, a major cog in that wheel of defection is a departure from the church assembled. Now you can defect sitting in one of these green chairs 52 Sundays a year. In fact, you can sit in one of these chairs and be as lost as anyone outside of this building. But critical to your ability to walk worthy of your call is to find your place within the context of a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church where there's accountability and encouragement and the kind of nourishment of soul that you need on a regular basis to run the race to finish the course that God has set before you. Again, hear me. We are not in this thing alone. And you and I have responsibilities that extend beyond the end of our nose. Your desires for the things of God, your willingness to walk worthy of your calling, your desire to observe the commands of God, not only have impact in your life personal, they have impact in my life as a member of this shared body. When Achan alone with his family sinned against the God of Israel, it wasn't just his wife and kids that were impacted by that decision, but the nation of Israel. An entire nation is brought down in battle because of one man's giving himself over to sin. And so it is with the body of Christ. There's a mutual shared responsibility that we have to offer accountability and encouragement, a sense in which we have deep and meaningful obligations to walk worthy of our calling for the good pleasure of our God, but also in the interest of those we share faith family with. If you're to run the race and finish the course, you're going to have to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling about, seeking an opportunity with you. You're going to have to resist him, and you resist him, remember, by being firm in the faith. Rest in his authority over all things. You know what you do the moment after you foul it up, you repent. And you know what you do the moment after that? You rest in the reality that in spite of your grave sin, God is in the business of restoration. And even your wrong-headed decisions can be used for your good and for his glory. Take your stand in the grace of God. Hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to gospel people. Finish well. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, and the privilege that has been ours to spend these moments together. God, I pray that you would hide your word away in our heart that we might not sin against, uh, against you. Save us, keep us, hold us fast against that day. In Jesus' name,